Okay, welcome to another episode of Out the Rabbit Hole here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We're also on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Robert Larson. This is our June 8th, 2007 edition of The Thing We Do, and it's uh, 4.07 on the clock. And uh, we had our usual opening music there from the Stooges, I Gotta Write, and we followed that up with a little extra treat today. The music of John Coltrane in uh, that uh, piece there was called The Invisible, and uh, that has some uh, uh, relevance for our show today. And before we get going, a couple quick reminders. The opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And if you want to give me some feedback on the show, I always appreciate that. You can uh, catch me at uh, rglarson at kuci.org. I'm also on MySpace. That's myspace.com slash outtherabbithole. Okay. Great art can move, inspire, cause fear and trembling, induce awe, and communicate that which words alone cannot. The art of Myron Conan Dial certainly does all of that. One notion that is being communicated by his sculptures, paintings, and drawings, recently on display here in Orange County, um, as a show as the primordial images of modern mystics, of a modern mystic, uh, one thing that is being communicated by this art is that he is a man who has struggled through a dark night of the soul peered into another world, and brought back images of transformative power. The bizarre nature of the alien and arguably dark and disturbing visions he creates uh, cause one to have a serious curiosity as to the details of the story of this man's journey. And those blanks are filled in by his autobiography, The Boy Nobody Wanted, Visionary Experiences Behind the Art. Myron Dial is my special guest today, and we will discuss his work and the tragedy, horror, disintegration, reintegration, and ultimate transcendence that inspired it all. Myron, we got you online here, on the board? I'm here, Robert. All right, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a great day. Yeah, it's great to have you, and uh, I want to urge anybody listening to the show right now, if you... uh, are doing anything other than driving if you're uh, next to a computer or listening to it on a computer to go to uh, myrondial.com that's www.myrondial.com and, and look at this art as we're talking about it and you, you can also go to the MySpace page and uh, w- that might be easier for you Myron what's the MySpace address? It's just uh, myspace.com and cellcon is the, is the word Z E or Z E L C O N. Okay, so that or my myspace.com slash Zelcon. Okay, so yeah, uh, go to one of those sites if you can while we're having our discussion because you it, it really uh, will get more out of this if you can see some of the things we're talking about. And we'll give that out again as we go along here in the show. So um, I, I first, uh, you know, I, I want to say to you, Myron, uh, you know, when I first stumbled upon your art at, at a show in Santa Ana. Yeah, I was quite amazed. In you know, when I looked at these images, I thought, ah, I, I need to talk to this guy. <laughs> There's something going on here. This guy has been through something. He, he's not just being weird. He, he's bringing this back from somewhere. So that so then a woman introduced us, and, and we just immediately started talking about shamanism, Gnosticism, and other worlds, and. So, but but anybody who knows anything about shamanism knows that you don't just wake up one day and yeah, as a shaman, there there's that whole business of the initiation, which in your case was a long process starting at a young age. So, c- can you take us back uh, there in time and tell us a bit about how that all started for you? Sure. Yeah. Originally, I went into a coma when I was four years old. And the length of the coma is in some cut question, but it was between two and and four months. And because uh, this is like the uh, 1940s, so you're talking about 1948, I think it was. And when I came out of the coma, my mind was completely erased. I didn't know my family, my mom, my dad, my brothers, or anything. I was a stranger in a strange land, and really have been ever since. Uh, but almost immediately... Um, I started seeing visions and and had a familiar that uh, 
playmate, whatever you want to call him back then, and uh, started experiencing these other worlds and 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 visions. Uh, initially, I think they were they were there as a support mechanism for a lot of things that went on during that time. It was a very difficult uh, time for my parents. They they thought I was demon possessed, and and uh, they sent me through two exorcisms because they were fundamentalist Christians. And I'm sure that they thought they were doing the right thing. Um, but there's an old expression: "God saves some people who do the right thing." <laughs> and um, they did the right thing and and put me through the exorcisms. And then I just stopped telling them that I had these experiences. Because, you know, like any, anybody, you know, I was always wondering why no one else was seeing these things. So I would ask people, do you see that guy over there in the corner? And they would go, what guy in the corner? You know, and I was fairly bright, so I sort of figured out pretty quick that there was, that they weren't seeing these things that I was seeing and experiencing. And so I just began to get quiet about it, and I got more and more quiet about it, so I couldn't talk about it at home without back to the exorcist. So um, I've lived pretty much a, a private life uh, all these years until just recently when I was sort of outed for this show at Grand Central Arts Center. And, um, um, and it's been a, it has been a shamanistic experience, no question. I mean, I went into the underworld and I've been in the underworld until just recently. But back in the 80s and 90s, it was particularly difficult. And no one is, you know, no one volunteers for this kind of thing. You know, it's you either you are either in it or you're not. And for whatever reason, good, bad, or indifferent, um, it was my calling and has been, you know, since those early days. Yes. Yeah, so, so at age four, you went into this coma that lasted about a month. Yeah, maybe. Actually, some people say two months, some say four. So Okay, and and then when you came out of the coma, your memory was erased, had had no recollection of anything in your life that had happened prior to the coma. Yeah, the only thing, actually, the only thing that penetrated the memory barrier was music. I was uh, musically inclined at a very early age, and uh, they say there was only two kinds of prodigies, music and math. And um, not that I was a prodigy, but but ma- but music seems to have pen- penetrated the barrier of memory, whereas nothing else, including who my parents were, who my brother was. So you know, I, I really felt like a, a total stranger in a strange land. Yeah. So so then you started having the seizures. It, it was epilepsy, and your parents were interpreting this as possession by demons and were performing these exorcisms that weren't pleasant for you. Your parents actually kind of had some shame about your your condition, and so you learned to kind of just keep it under wraps as much as possible because there wasn't much of an upside to telling people about it, and people just didn't accept that you were seeing these things. And uh, so that it just kind of, in a certain sense, caused you to more enter into this kind of alternate reality and live there more as much as in the world that all of us consider the real world. Yeah, as a matter of fact, my uh, my memory of childhood, I can remember my inner experiences um, with total recall. I cannot remember the day-to-day, more mundane experiences at all. I only have flashes of them. As a matter of fact, I, I didn't recall much about any of it until I started writing that book that I have online, The Boy That Nobody Wanted, um, my spirit guide asked me to start writing that book back in '04, and, and I wasn't a writer, so I, I said, you know, I didn't want to do it. And he said, buy a tape recorder and start dictating this and, and write it. So I, so I did that, and while I was writing the part of my childhood, so much stuff started coming back to me about my experiences uh, that I had either suppressed or forgotten on the extroverted uh, world, on my inner world, I, I never had any problem remembering any of that. So, was, so my inner world is very numinous and very powerful, and, and has sustained me through a great deal of trauma, um, both both internal trauma and external trauma. And uh, yeah, my parents were fundamentalist believers, and and uh, they really did believe that I was demon possessed because of my behavior, even though there was a diagnosis that I had epilepsy, but they they considered epilepsy a demon possession because that's what it says in Mark and in Matthew. Um, 
So yeah, there's 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 there was that stigma attached yeah, to me. right. And so uh, when you say you had the spirit guide, now, now some people are going to say, well, you know, you have temporal lobe ep- epilepsy, and that involves hallucinations, and you know, this is just a hallucination. Your spirit guide. Well, you know, the the key there is the word just. You know, it doesn't make any difference whether whether my spirit guide is from or partially from TLE, temporal lobe epilepsy, or whether it is some other manifestation. The facts are that without that spirit guide, I wouldn't be here talking to you. So I've even asked Charon, that's what I call him, you know, he's the the Greek ferryman who takes people across the river Styx from the land of the living to the land of the dead. And I called him that many, many, many years later after my childhood, after when I, when I went searching for truth, justice, in the American way. And, <laughs> and uh, uh, But uh, I asked him one day, you know, are, are you kind of like a super Myron? Are you uh, just a manifestation of my imagination? Are you a supernatural being? Or are you, uh, are you an angel? I went down a whole litany of R.U.s, and I basically got an answer, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of like, well, whatever you want to call me, that's okay with me. Kind of like Harvey the White Rabbit. You know, I mean, if you want to call me Harvey with a White Rabbit, that's fine with me. But, um, but, but the facts still remain that, that his leadership and his interaction with me saved me um, on numerous occasions from extinction. Uh, that and I would have been out long ago, um, especially in the darkest parts of my journey into the underworld, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Yeah, you just there were times you just didn't feel like going on and, and didn't want to, and he gave you that little nudge of like, no, stay stay with the program. Well, you know, it's kind of you know when you when you live in a culture that puts no value on uh, these kinds of experiences, except to diagnose them as illnesses or. Um, manifestations of psychological problems um, or they put them into the the Christian demonic kind of category um, you 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 get some very strange messages about who you are uh, and how you should react in in the culture that you live in um, so you you get real quiet about your experiences which kind of gives you a, a very strange them and us kind of quality. You know, on, on the one hand, you have this wonderful world you live in that, that sustains you and, and, and is numinous and has these wonderful qualities of transformation. And then on the other side, you're afraid to express that to anyone because you're born and raised into a very conservative kind of environment that does not lend itself to uh, those kinds of discussions or experiences. Had I been born in some shamanistic culture, it would have been a no-brainer. I would have been a shaman. That would have been it. Shamans are born. They're not made. And, and, and I would have just gone on and had a wonderful life. But unfortunately for me, I was born into a, into a culture that, that does not value these things, uh, not so much the culture in general, but the culture that my parents were involved in. And so consequently, I had to hide it. And I hid it for many, 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 many years. In fact, I was never going to let it be out. Yeah. So the I, I love what you said about your spirit guide, uh, Kieran, when 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 you asked him, uh, "Are you this? Are you this? Are you this? Are you?" This? And he, yes. And and it's like that funny, you know, the crazy Zen master. And it's like, oh, so 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 you get it. And it, it's all of those things, and none of those things. And and the bottom line, as you said, is what was the result. It allowed you to survive and to thrive, and so the, his influence on your life was a very positive thing. and And it, it's a great thing that he wasn't uh, medicated or exorcised away. And uh, like you said, in in a shamanic culture, your behavior would have been recognized. Oh, okay, he's got the calling to be the shaman. And so it, it's strange where we live. And and it, I think it's 
amazing that you've been able to come through. And, and it's almost like something somewhere, some bit of consciousness that, you know what, we need a little bit more uh, shamanistic input into modern American culture, and certain people uh, maybe are somehow selected out that way, and, uh, you know, that maybe is the case with you, but or not. <laughs> but but it, it, I think the overall effect is, is good, that we have people that can do this for us, because we need that balance. And um, so it comes... Uh, uh, to me, it, it, a lot of this comes down to your art, which is so amazing and profound and transformative, and, and people really need to see this. And uh, the uh, again, I'll give that out the website. It's myrondial.com, M-Y-R-O-N-D-Y-A-L.com. So any of you listening at home, if you can go to your computer and go to that website and try to see some of this art as we talk about it. So so how did the art manifest, uh, Myron? At what point did you start creating the art as a way of, of bringing your I- inner world out from just inside of you uh, to, to the physical world? At what point did you start doing that? Well, I originally, I, I was, like I said before, I was a musician, and, I, and my education background is all music. I play viola, um, it's like a violin, but bigger, and and I and uh, I play the piano, and I played a lot of jazz and things, and and uh, I also my degrees are in composition, and so I I used to try to write music about my visions, and I remember one day I was talking to my composition teacher, my my graduate student teacher, and um, and and he was saying, so where do you get your ideas for your music? And I said, well, I have these visions. And then I write music about them. And he says, well, if you have visual visions, why don't you go over to the art department? I mean, what are you doing here, <laughs> you know, in the music department? I mean, this is really music, no matter whether you call it something or not, is an abstract quality. You know, there's no real image. You know, if I say this is La Mer the Sea, then, you know, you may say, well, that doesn't sound like the sea to me. It sounds like wind or something else. So back in the late 70s, um, I started making drawings in journals about my visions. And from those early drawings, and believe me, I was never an artist. Uh, My brother was the artist. I was the musician. So I started making these very primitive drawings in very small journals, almost like stick drawings. And Georgie O'Keefe said, an artist's skill will rise to their vision. And as my vision, you know, expanded... Um, I began to get better at it. And so I graduated from these little tiny journals, which were mostly written material and a few little drawings, to larger journals that are like eight and a half by 11, things like that, and that have like two or 300 pages in them. And then I just fill those pages with images uh, just as fast as I could get them down, <coughs> excuse me, recording um, what, what I was experiencing because uh, at that time, I was I was going off and spending a lot of time uh, in the wilderness and on what I call the mountain, unquote, um, and seeking my energy, which just means that I would go up there, I wouldn't be expecting anything, and I would sit down on a rock and meditate all day if that's what it took. And I would sit there if, if that's what Karen told me to do, and I would meditate and wait until these images began to manifest themselves. And then they then they either would or would not. And my job was not to make the image happen. My job was just to go there and make myself available and passive so that I could be a receiver for this information. Then I would go back to my study and draw in my journal all the experiences that I had day to day to day and date them. So I actually have dates and times on every entry. In fact, that's where all the experiences from the book comes from, that in the second half of the book, have to do with with those those kinds of visions. Um, so from that kind of primitive beginning, I began to. Uh, I always do it, did what I call danced the image, which means that I would make a drawing of the image, and then I would actually do a ceremony, like an Indian sand painting. Mm-hmm. I would do a ceremony around that image because the image to me was a living thing. It wasn't static. I didn't see it like a snapshot. I saw it as a continuum. It was, it was an experience that I entered into when I was on the mountain. And in that experience, I extrapolated out some, some things that I, that I remembered when I got back to the house, and then I would put those, those images down in my journals. So 
I remembered the entire continuum of that experience and danced that, that I did back in 1979 and 80, are still not fulfilled. Those images are still numinous and, and powerful, and they still overwhelm me when I look at them. So all that stuff is not integrated. And then, of course, beyond that, I, I got to a place where 8.5 by 11 pencil drawings or watercolors weren't going to do it. So then I started painting with acrylics on larger canvases, on larger surfaces, because the images were so, so powerful that I needed another medium, and I needed uh, a greater variety of uh, color and substance in order to, to render them. Uh, the, people ask me about the color in my paintings. Why is it so bright? Why is it so, so beautiful and all that sort of thing? And, and the fact is that I paint exactly the colors that I see. Mm-hmm. I don't add or subtract from them. So, so the so the color is sort of locked in. If I see the vision in color, I do it in color. If I see the vision in black and white, I paint it in black and white. So it really doesn't make any difference, you know, what medium I'm in. If if it's a, if it's a color vision, it goes in color. So then beyond painting, uh, painting is still just two dimensional. Even though you paint it and it looks like a three dimensional image, it's still only a two dimensional image. So I go, went from there to sculpture because sculpture, you know, is like it's three dimensional. It's it's like it's more like life. It's more like what I saw, and so the images that required a three dimensional image, I spent many 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 hours working on these very large sculptures that are all life size, um, as you saw at that show, and on my website, uh, it takes me four or five months to do one of those images. So again, I make a drawing of it, and then later I go back and finish the image. And when the image is done, I do a whole ceremony around it. Sometimes I lay flowers around it. Sometimes I sing to it. Sometimes I write a song to it. Sometimes uh, it sings to me. Uh, So a lot of things, there's a lot of inner reaction, like I'm working on a piece right now, and her energy is so powerful that she's opening my mind every morning. Every morning I see, you know, this new light and new optimism coming out of her and and shining bright lights coming my direction and stars flashing and all kinds of stuff, and she's not even finished. Uh, even though I had the vision some weeks ago, um, I'm, ne- I'm just now working on the sculpture. So so, so that's the kind of the chronology of, of it started with drawings, went to paintings, went to sculptures. You know, I have like 60 or 70 large sculptures some some are sold and most of them are still here and they were in that show that you saw so that that's how the art came about and what happened to the music was that the music got pushed out um it's kind of interesting you know um christ said you know if a man will find his life he'll lose it and if he loses his life he'll find it Mm -hmm. and i kind of had a life in music i had a an idea of myself an identity it was a good cover story, and when I mean cover story, I mean I could hide behind being the artist and uh, not have to reveal this inner life of mine. And then all of a sudden, one day, all of my musical inspiration just came to an end, and it was all replaced by by this visual journey that I that I was taking. In fact, my early journals were even I even wrote music in in with the pictures even with the in with the the uh the visions yeah yeah and so that's so that's kind of where that was from yeah okay this is um out the rabbit hole um KUCI in Irvine I'm Robert Larson uh, speaking today with Myron Conan Dial and we're talking about his uh profound journey lifelong journey and the, and the amazing art that resulted from that and I, I want to tell you if you're listening and you're near a computer to go to myrondial.com m y r o n d y a l.com and, and have a look at some of this art as we talk about it uh and so myron i notice your art is unique however there there are certain things about it that that's sort of numinous luminous that that reminds me of some things that i've seen some shamans do it, it seems like it's coming from a similar place although it's definitely your unique uh vision uh, now, so you were, you started doing this art in the 70s, you said, right? Yeah, 1979. So you were having these experiences and these visions for how many decades prior to that? Oh, 
since I was four, so it would have been twenty years. Yeah, yeah. So, so then, it, so for twenty years, you weren't creating any of this visual art. Then you started creating it, and then uh, for decades after you started doing the art, there were only a couple of close personal friends that ever actually saw this stuff. Yeah, I, I, I didn't make this to ever show it. I, I made this art because I was driven to make it, and and it was a record of of my journeys for me and it helped me deal with all my inner pain and struggle and it also um uh helped me with 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 my own growth in in my inner life and so i never intended to show this to anyone except like you said a very sh- a, a very group of sh- of close friends and my ultimate goal was that once I was at a certain age where I was going to leave the earth and return home. Um, I was going to take it out in the desert and burn it all and film it, and that would be that would be its final destination to go back to the source that it came from. And that just didn't happen <laughs> because my energy had a different plan, and that plan was to get it out in the world and sort of out me, if you want to look at it that way, mm-hmm. and I really did not want to do that. I mean, uh, so this it, was a friend a who talked to you? It's a scary thing to let people know about your inner life. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, how would you like to have your most personal journeys and uh, journals and diaries read by everyone, you know, seen by everyone, and then, and then criticized and talked about, um, Caron, my spirit guide, basically said, you know, that's not important. Forget about that. That has nothing to do with this. This this is going to happen, and you need to just get out of the way and let it happen. Well, that sounds easy, but it's not as easy as it sounds. So I had some resistance about it and a lot of anxiety about coming out and showing this art and letting people see it and... And um, uh, except for those chosen few that came here, I mean, I did readings for many, many, many years with uh, the I Ching and the Taro. Uh, I hope everybody knows what that is. I'm sure they do. And um, those people that came here to have readings, of course, saw the the underworld that that uh, that you saw at the at the exhibition. And the underworld is in my downstairs. It's a 500 square foot room, and it's full of that art. And that's where I would do the readings. And that's where I would also do all the ceremonies. Um, I'll give you a couple of anecdotes. I brought a, I brought a colleague of mine here. I'm a businessman in a very conservative business. <laughs> and I brought a colleague here one, to- one time, and I let him see that room. And uh, he virtually never talked to me again. <laughs> wow, that's uh, that. That was your fear that that w- would happen. But uh, you, ultimately, your, your spirit guide, Kiran, and and uh, convinced you at some point, or sort of convinced you. And ultimately, it's played out that it was the best thing to do, even though it caused some bumpy experiences for you. Well, I think that that first of all, this is bigger than me, and and, and it's not all about me. You know, this art is not about me. It's not about Myron Dial um, Esquire. You know, I mean, that's, that's not what it's about. It's really a universal experience that is available to anyone who wants it or calls it. And I don't care where you'd have that experience, whether, you, whether you're Thomas Merton and you have it in a Buddhist temple or at the Catholic Church or you have it uh, in a, your private time just sitting around on a rock somewhere, or you experience it, you know, in a bar, or it doesn't matter where you experience it. What matters is that these things are available to anyone who wants to seek them. And it was very selfish of me, I think, to to think that I should keep this under wraps and not let people know that it existed. And even though, yeah, my personal story my personal chronology was one of of you know pain and tragedy and all of that i think that that story needs to get out to let people know that no matter what happens to them no matter what their circumstances are um they can still be who they are they can still become what they need to become and um there's a composer olivier messiaen and 
he wrote a, a piece called The Quartet for the End of Time when he was in a German concentration camp. And it's a wonderful piece. I highly recommend it. And so uh, even while he was in hell, so to speak, he was writing wonderful music that was that's so inspirational. <coughs> Excuse me. So in my case, you know, I've been to hell, and in fact, I can give you one anecdote. I, I once, I once went to in my book. I talk about it. I went to hell literally. I went to the down this river that was just a smelly river in the, in this vision, and this this spirit guy took me there and and uh, and he let me off. And I'll I'll, I'll paraphrase the, the story because it's kind of long. And uh, he opened these giant doors, and when I went into this big, huge chamber that was as huge as the Colosseum, I mean, it was just gigantic, people were screaming, or creatures were screaming, whatever they were, I could barely make them out. And they were in revelry about some being that they were praising, and I couldn't make out what it was or who it was or anything else. And then out of this sort of fog came this unbelievably gorgeous-looking creature. He must have been 12, 14 feet high, something like that. And you could feel his malevolence. I mean, you could feel that this was a very powerful creature, a demon, if you will. And um, he asked me point blank, what are you doing here? And I said, well, your, your spirit guide brought me here, and I, I assumed that I belong here. And his answer to that was, A, my guy didn't bring you, and two, this is not a place for you. You don't belong here. Mm. So he, he was actually very nice about it and touched me, and uh, I mean, I felt such a euphoria from this demonic person. But he, he took me back to the boat, and all of it, you know, when he walked out, the boat just showed up, and, and it took me back. You know, and when I woke up, I was on the mountain, and it was a rainy afternoon, and and it was really kind of an amazing vision. It took like seven hours for this vision to take place, so I was gone for that seven hours. And but the one thing that I got out of it was a I wasn't demon possessed, and b hell rejected me, <laughs> so I got thrown out of hell. So, <laughs> so the idea that that whole idea from childhood that I was demon possessed was assuaged in that moment by by the demon himself telling me, you know, that you don't belong here, that you're not a part of this. Wow, that that's very very powerful and and, and that is something that to share with people, it, it can be a very healing thing because there are, I'm sure, as you know, and you've met them, other people out there who've gone through similar types of horrors and are, are trying to heal themselves. And uh, the and I I know another really powerful thing about what you're doing is that you are trying to raise awareness about epilepsy in about um, and trying to remove that stigma that many people suffer under. And you you're doing some work with an epilepsy uh, foundation. Or you've done some work with them? Yeah, I was on their board for like 10 years, and, and um, it's amazing the, the stigma that still exists for people who have epilepsy. The, the interesting thing about epilepsy is that it, 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 it affects about 1.5% of the population. Now, that's more people than, than MS and Parkinson's combined. And, and yet, it has the least amount of research money and all the rest, because the stigma of epilepsy goes back in Western culture, um, back into history. And it's really kind of interesting, in the time of the Bible, people were stoned to death who had epilepsy in those kinds of cultures. Now, in the shamanistic world, most of those shamans were probably epileptic. Mm-hmm. And there, and in the American Indian or the Native American cultures, they were considered the, sh- the shamans or medicine men of their cultures. So, again, I was just kind of born in the wrong place at the wrong time. <laughs> but um, but the Epilepsy Foundation, the reason I got involved with the Epilepsy Foundation is I did not know I had epilepsy until I was like uh, 50 years old. Uh, sure, I had experiences and I had seizures and I had all the rest of it, but since no one ever told me that I had epilepsy, that word... Um, I did not know that that I had that. As a matter of fact, 
it came about by one, my ex-wife. She thought I was schizophrenic. And so uh, she took me to an analyst under the guise of marriage counseling. And turns out that it was all set up to determine whether I was schizophrenic or not. Well, after four or five sessions, this doctor said, excused my ex-wife and said, I want to talk to you. And he, and he explained to me the setup. And I was really angry about it, of course. And he said, but I want you to know that you're not schizophrenic. You don't have any schizophrenic symptoms whatsoever. And have you ever thought that you might have temporal lobe epilepsy? And I said, well, n- no. Actually, because I'm, you know, I was in the army, you know, in the whole nine yards. So um, I never even put that together. And he said, "Well, if if I set it up, would you undergo the test to see if that were indeed true?" And I said, "Yeah, sure," um, because you know everybody's always looking for a reason, an answer. You know, what is the answer to all of this stuff? Is there an answer? Everybody wants to put everything into a box. So I went to a neurologist here, and, and sure enough, I was diagnosed with epilepsy. And from that, I just I went, I went on the bandwagon. I, I decided to be an activist rather than to retire into, into and retreat into quietude. I decided to be an activist. So I, I was at a client, Children's Hospital of Orange County, and I was reading this book, this children's book about epilepsy, and it said, uh, call this number if you want more information about the Epilepsy Foundation. So I called it, and there was a national organization, and they referred me to the local organization here in L.A. and in Orange County. And so I went down and got involved and then got on their board and was on their board for 10 years and um, actually did a film with Jim Abrams called um, First Do No Harm, uh, where, where I was a character in that film, along with Meryl Streep. She, she starred in the film. So I did a lot. Of, I, I, I uh, lobbied Congress. I testified in front of the Joint Committee on, on the NIH and CDC and the National Institute of Health and, and all that. And so I did a lot of extroverted things that really helped me, you know, validate my own experiences. And then I started talking in front of groups like I did at the uh, Grand Central uh, Epilepsy event, and people would come up to me and tell me their experiences, and because I would literally talk to thousands of people, and and they would come up and tell me their experiences. Interestingly enough, though, they never ever related to me the kinds of visions that I have, but they had other kinds of experiences that were unique to them, and we had some things in common. Uh, recently, as as recently as a few years ago, I went to UCLA and and went to the best neurologist in the country. Since I was on the board with ten of them, it was kind of an they had I had kind of an easy access to that to that group of physicians. And when all the tests were run and 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 all the data was in, um, the doctor looked at me and he said, "You know, we can't explain your experiences by epilepsy alone." There must be something else going on that we don't know about. The fact is they know so little about epilepsy, just like they know so little about any other brain disorder, that almost anything is possible. You know? and, there, and there's so many kinds and varieties of epilepsy, everything from what people usually think of, which is grand malls where a person actually seizes and falls on the floor, to people who see the room expand or people who have... Uh, visionary experiences like me or or people who have deja vu or jama vu you know deja vu is you know you come into an unfamiliar a familiar place and um and and you see something and and uh, you, you come into an unfamiliar place and it looks familiar and and jama vu is you come into a familiar place and it doesn't look familiar and that happens to me quite a bit i come home and it doesn't look like home and and within an hour or two i go oh yeah yeah this is home yeah, you uh, recounted some int- fascinating I- examples of that in your book, and uh, the uh, it's you, you said that the visions that you have they don't seem to the epilepsy somehow is related to it, but it's not a precise fit of your type of visions you see that are exa- necessarily caused by the epilepsy. It's like it maybe it triggers it somehow, but there's something else. Pop- 
possibly or probably going on? Well, I think that that in, in everybody's case, you know, and Mike, and I'll just talk about me specifically. It's like my life was like a big bang. It started at a dot of consciousness, and then that big bang exploded and incorporated a whole listen, uh, plethora of of images and experiences uh, from either my life, past lives, whatever whatever you want to call it, dream worlds, dream realities, the dream time, you know, whatever. And um, there's an old expression, every soul builds himself a house. And... So in my case, the expansion, just it just continued to expand because I did not fight it. I did not try to control it. I didn't try to, to explain it. I just let it happen and experienced it. And I think that the catalyst for that explosion was, was a seizure, was, was the coma. And, um, and then I think the epilepsy is... Is, is the catalyst that makes my mind so permeable. In other words, for instance, when you dream and at night, you see those are like visions, except that you're asleep, and so everybody thinks, oh, I had a dream. So at, in the daytime, I see what, I, what you would be dreaming at night, except that I see it in the daytime, because for some reason, that barrier between my unconscious and the conscious world is permeable, and it lets information flow out freely whenever it wants to. And I have no ability to stop it, nor would I want to, but I have no ability to stop it or control it, and it just comes out whenever it pleases. And my job is to basically experience it and then record it and try to figure out what it's trying to tell me. Sometimes it's telling me about collective stuff, and sometimes it's telling me about my own individual stuff. Most of the time, it's about my individual stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, I think, true of, of regular dreams that, quote-unquote, regular people have, is that, yeah, sometimes it's about the personal, and sometimes it's more about the collective. And I, I thought it was interesting how your wife had suspected that you had uh, schizophrenia, and the the... Um, it's often been said that it's a fine line between a schizophrenic and a shaman, but uh, would you say it's also can be a fine line between a an epileptic and a shaman? Oh, sure. <laughs> you know, like for instance, I think every everybody who has epilepsy is not going to be a shaman, and you know, and everybody who's a shaman is not going to have epilepsy. But I think that that uh, in my case, for whatever reason, um, it was it was the crack between the worlds that opened the door that allowed me access to information that most people cannot get to. I don't know why it, you know, that happened to me. I just know, like, like I have a musical talent, that that's an ability that I have. And, um, and I'm very grateful and, and, um, um, and not ego-connected to it mm-hmm. so that I can actually participate in it and be very and be very it's very loving it's very supportive um you can always you know there's an old there's an old expression again i hate to keep saying that phrase uh that uh, you should test all spirits somebody one of my ex-wives i've had two so said to me well what if this creature told you to do somebody harm well that's not how it works you know the way it works is these beings are here for your better good, not for any detriment. So they're not going to be recommending <laughs> that I do something against some other human being. Uh, to me, that is sorcery and not shamanism, and, or at least not my kind of shamanism. My kind of shamanism is about love, it's about healing, it's about acceptance, it's about being who you are, it's about loving other people for who they are, it's about accepting everyone in the human family into that matrix, regardless of who they are and what they think. You know, as long as they're not coming after me, they can be whoever they like to be. And there's sort of like almost like a Hippocratic oath to that as well, and then first do no harm, is in that that is kind of the shamanism that you seem to, to practice. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if, if I can help one individual by telling this story, and one person you know, decides, you know, he's, he's right. Maybe I should be 
drawing, painting, writing, taking walks, seeking my own energy, whatever it is, building houses, designing things, it doesn't make any difference what it is. What matters is that it helps you become who you are. And like, like uh, Joseph Campbell says, you find your bliss. Mm-hmm. You know, it, I, you know, you realize that if you, if everyone found their bliss, we wouldn't have any wars, we wouldn't have any problems, we wouldn't even have any crime. But of course, nobody—that's not going to happen. You know, I mean, I remember one time somebody was criticizing Ramakrishna because he was sitting in a cave all the time and meditating, and they said, "Well, what if everybody sat in a cave and meditated?" And he said, "Well, everybody's not going to sit in a cave and meditate, <laughs> so you don't have that problem." Not everybody is going to have to go through what I've gone through, and every, not everybody's going to have visions. Not everybody's going to record them. You know, for, but for, for me and my house, that's what I've had to do, and that's what I have done. This is Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI in Irvine. I'm Robert Larson, and we're speaking with Myron Dial and talking about his uh, life story, his uh, quite a uh, Amazing journey and the uh, wonderful art that resulted from that. And, uh, Myron, I, I do want to ask you a little bit, we don't have too much time left here, but ab- about the actual entities that you've made the sculptures of, and that uh, the uh, they many of them are, are part human and part some other animal, uh, uh, sort of some mermaid characters and things like that. And then, But there, there seems to be this thing about many of them that they have this protrusion out of the top of their head, uh, a fin-like thing, you, can you explain that or what that is? Yeah, I, I can tell you, the, first of all, they're all anthropomorphic. You'll notice that they look like uh, trees and rocks and, and dirt and, and parts of nature that have sort of transposed themselves into something else. Because they all started out as trees or rocks or parts of buildings or whatever, and then they're anthropomorphic in the sense that they morphed into um, the creature that came out of them. So, for instance, let's say I was sitting on the on the mountain and I saw this. And I was looking at a tree and I was just staring at the tree. And I spent many many hours doing it. And all of a sudden, the tree comes alive and explodes, and out of the tree comes um, a, a creature that has arms like limbs of the tree that that has a body that that looks like wood but is looks like flesh as well or um that fan that you're talking about is that that kind of i think it's more like an aura fan than it is anything else but um that symbol of of the the head with that with that large fan behind it that actually contracts. If, if there's a sculpture I made called uh, the Goddess of Winter, where that fan is flat, hmm. so it's kind of it, it it expands or contracts depending on what is going on. It even blows in the wind. So when I've I've seen a lot of these visions, those those parts of the the head are actually blowing like hair in the wind. And then again, I'm I'm taking a snapshot of them and saying click. <laughs> this is this is what I'm going to render because it says what I want it to say, and but it, during the during that whole process, that whole thing could have shrunk back straight, and you wouldn't even see it. It would just be like hair flat behind the person or the creature or whatever. Um, Does it have some sort of antenna-like purpose or anything you can glean like that? I think that that if it had any purpose at all, it's it's expansion of consciousness. It's well, like a it's like a, a a net that catches you know consciousness and consciousness in the world kind of thing. I mean, these are mostly gods and goddesses in in my mind, and so um, or manifestations of that kind of energy. So so they they are they are receivers as well as transmitters of that inf- of that stuff. So if they're receiving the energy from the world, it's it's going into that part of their 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 being, and they sort of catch it with that with that fan head. And then when it, when they're transmitting, they might collapse that or whatever. You know, I've seen them sleeping and their head is down and that fan is, 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 is tucked back behind them. So, so the, the significance of it is not totally known to me. Um, it's really none of my business. Uh, but, 
but that's my intuition of it because kind of like uh you know you you can watch a cat you know smell on the wind mm-hmm. you know you can yeah. all of a sudden they do that that thing where they're smelling something on the wind oh yeah i have i have seen the, the some of these visionary creatures um their their fans sort of catch something on the wind kind of say you know because the wind i mean the, the word numa which means spirit comes from the word wind and so i think that that in in the dimensions that i am in when these visions take place you know these these guys are the spirit catchers of that energy whether that's collective stuff coming their direction or just from me i don't know and they haven't told me so and i haven't asked so well we gotta we gotta wrap up here myron we're just about out of time but uh, uh real quick i want to mention to people again uh the website myrondial.com m-y-r-o-n-d-y-a-l.com and the uh myspace address again it's uh it's just myspace uh, dot com slash zelcon c e l c o n okay and i you know i wanted to say it's it's a really honorable thing that you're doing to to share your your story and to help empower people that have gone through uh, struggles similar to yours and uh, to help to remove the stigma about uh, epilepsy and just to to share these astounding visions with us and uh, so i just want to thank you so much for that well, it's my pleasure, and I'm, and I'm so glad that I, I got a chance to talk, and I and, uh, hope we get to do it again sometime. And, and um, you know, I, I think the, the world is, is ready for, for a lot of people to come forward, and I hope that they do, you know, and, uh, and I hope that, that by me coming forward and making a few statements and having some art shows, and, and I have a book being, you know, that's coming out pretty quick, um, that that it will it'll it'll empower other people to become who they are too. So okay. that's sort of my ambition. The the boy nobody wanted visionary experiences behind the art, and, and that they can find that on your uh, website as well. Right, and then there's another book coming out called Primordial Images of a Modern Mystic that Grand Central Press is going to be releasing in the next month. Okay, well we'll have to talk to you again, Myron. Okay, great, uh, great having you. Okay, have a great weekend. You too, pal. It was a great show. All right, bye now. Bye bye. All right, Myron Dial, and check out his website, myrondial.com, M-Y-R-O-N-D-Y-A-L.com. We're really out of time here. Robert Larson uh, closing out Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, also on the web at KUCI.org.